Hi everyone. In the fourth episode of this lockdown series, we spoke to Russell Foster, Professor of Circadian Neuroscience and Head of the Department of Ophthalmology at Oxford. Russell is a world-leading expert in sleep and its links to mental health, so we hope this podcast can help get you a better night's sleep. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us a rating and a review on iTunes. Hi Russell, how are you? I'm pretty good, thanks Harry. Um, so to start with, we always ask um, what your kind of personal or professional relationship looks like with mental health. So personally, there have been family members who have certainly had depression and have been treated to depression. So I, I, I know what depression is firsthand. And that's, I think, been quite useful and has triggered an interest in, in mental health. And professionally, I, I got into this because I was uh, chatting to a psychiatrist and uh, he said to me, you know, you work on body clocks and sleep, don't you? And I said, you know, yeah. And he said, well, of course, um, uh, all my patients, they have terrible sleep. That's because they don't have a job. So they go to bed late, get up late, miss my clinic and don't have friends. And I thought that was absolute bloody nonsense. And so we decided to study sleep weight disruption in mental health systematically and quantitatively, really for the first time. And what really triggered my profound interest in the area was the finding that the circadian and sleep-wake patterns of these individuals wasn't just bad, it was absolutely smashed. And we compared these individuals to unemployed, and the unemployed are fairly stable and not that different from from the employed. And, And that really got me into this whole area. And I wanted to understand why. Why would you find this association between mental health and uh, sleep-wake uh, 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 disruption. That's that's really interesting. So I've read um, somewhere that typically within kind of clinical psychiatry that sleep was an area that didn't receive as much um, research interest at all. Do you know why that would be and, and how that started to change now? Well, I think there's two two areas. I mean, one of the, my great collaborators, Paul Harrison, in the psychiatry here in Oxford, we worked on a, on a grant together, and um, he we spent a lot of time working on this project. And I, I asked Paul, I said, you know, Paul, I'm, I'm just amazed. You know, you're you're a practicing psychiatrist, um, and I, it's fantastic that you're willing to commit so much time to this. And he said, you don't get it. I went into psychiatry because I wanted to understand the human brain. And then I discovered that more than 50% of my colleagues felt that their work had nothing to do with the brain, but the mind. And so still embedded in in psychiatry is this this, this mind-brain difference. And that what you might expect would be at the root of psychiatry, which is neuroscience, is still not there. And so the first part is that um, it's extraordinary. There should be much more neuroscience uh, within within psychiatry. And I mean, not just brain imaging, I mean, I mean, proper hardcore neuroscience. Uh, and, and I think that all the clinical disciplines, psychiatry included, have completely marginalized sleep. Um, and, and so whatever domain, whether it be neurology, whether it be psychiatry, whether it be vision and ophthalmology, sleep has never really been 
part of the training and never really part of the thought processes. So when I you know, started in this business and I started talking to ophthalmologists and said, you know, if you've got radical eye damage or no eyes, there's no way you can detect the light dark cycle to regulate internal time. So you're going to have profound disruption of the sleep wake cycle. And all the, all, all the, all the ophthalmologists I spoke to sort of said, Oh my God, I hadn't realized. Yes, but of course you're quite right. And so it's just not on their radar. It's changing slowly, but I think it's still true that in a medical training, uh, a five-year medical training, uh, then most most um, uh, junior doctors would um, get maybe one or two lectures on sleep and circadian rhythms, and, and, and it really is just not enough. It's not a subject that uh, has been embraced or been taken seriously. Have you, you kind of touched upon it there, but have you seen a kind of shift towards um, towards looking at sleep in a more medical point of view? I can I can definitely see it occurring in a kind of commercial setting within or outside medicine with with kind of um much more money being spent on you know pillows mattresses all these sleep sprays and stuff i don't know how what the effectiveness of them is but can you see it is is it changing in in medicine it's sort of changing i mean the great problem is that in the medical training there is so much to cover uh, that um, trying to make room for for sleep and circadian rhythms uh, is always a problem. Um, we have managed to get into the preclinical curriculum six lectures on sleep and circadian rhythms, and it's become the most popular mod- module. And everybody wants now to do their projects with us, which is fantastic. Um, but but we've actually had to fight to get it. You know those six lectures, um, and one of the ways that we within the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute have tried to address address that has been to develop the first fully online uh, sleep medicine master's degree uh, led by Simon Kyle and and Colin Espy. And what that has enabled people to do, healthcare professionals, is download the lectures when they have the time to look at them and also to schedule tutorials with us um, and indeed write essays and and interact um, at a time that works best for them. And so we now uh, have quite a large cohort of individuals doing this uh, degree all around the world. And if you do the master's degree, then you come and spend a week in Oxford doing uh, hands-on experience as well. So I think there's two problems. One, historically, it's never been part of the curriculum. And two, the curriculum is now so gridlocked you're going to have to remove something to introduce sleep. And because most people don't know much about sleep, they're reluctant to introduce it. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. How, and the uptake on that, on that master's has been pretty good then. Oh, it's been fantastic. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the, the sadness for me is that we have to charge for it. Um, so we, you know, we're, 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 we're sort of asking for the fees and things um, to, to maintain the course. And what I'd really like to do is, is get sponsorship and fellowships. So people in uh, parts of the world who are less affluent and the emerging nations, for example, can also um, take part in this, 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 I think, great experience. Yes, it is. Um, I'm not an expert on how funding works in medicine at all, but is is there more money for research being diverted to to sleep projects? It's been very variable. Um, So um, some research bodies uh, and really quite well-known research bodies have consistently rejected it as a discipline. Others have embraced it and I've been very fortunate to be funded by the Wellcome Trust for most of the time uh, since I came back from the United States. I, I got 
um, UKRI funding. It used to be called BBSRC in those days. And they kicked my basic research off and then Welcome took over with, with substantial funding. Um, but outside of that, it's been pretty tough. Um, so um, we are now going to go to these people that haven't funded us in the past and, and see if their attitudes have changed. Okay, and I'd um, I'd urge anyone to go and visit the the, the Welcome Trust just opposite Euston Station because it's they have some really really fascinating um, exhibitions there, and the bookshop is one of the the best kind of. Um, places to find interesting stuff that you didn't know interested you uh, well, well, before. I, I completely agree. And, I, and and in fact, if if I have meetings in London, a lot of the time, and, and they're not even with a Welcome Trust, you know, I was talking to some other people and we decided to meet, you know, at the coffee shop um, uh, on the Eastern Road because it's a good place for coffee. And, and as you rightly point out, it's a fantastic um, a building. And if you wanted to spend a few minutes afterwards, you can wander around not only the bookshop, but also uh, some of the exhibits there. So have the Welcome been kind of at the front i know they've done a lot in in mental health and so and their exhibitions there have been really interesting have they done a lot in outside sleep as well have they done a lot in kind of pushing areas of science and medicine that historically haven't been that popular well when we set up the the sleep and schedule neuroscience institute the strategic award that we got from the welcome trust had a focus on mental health and what they um, were very keen to see were re- researchers like ourselves, neuroscientists, um, working closely with psychiatrists. And they were concerned that there wasn't enough neuroscience in psychiatry. And so I think we were kind of pushing a bit, of, a bit at an open door. And, but it was the, the Welcome's mission to try and um, embed more neuroscience in psychiatry. And so I think we were, we were part of that initiative. So it's a good example where Welcome have invested in areas which they think are under-invested and, and have the potential of, of delivering huge benefits. We were talking before and I mentioned that my, my dad works in medicine and he's got a lot of his funding um, to do with HIV and AIDS um, from the Welcome Trust. So they are definitely putting money in those historically... Uh, uh, ignored areas so well in... yes i think the welcome trust uh, really have have allowed british Br- british biosciences to maintain their their world not i wouldn't say world lead but we're up there with the best of them i mean we we we, we punch way above our weight um and i think the welcome trust have been critical in allowing uh biomedical research in the uk to thrive so so god bless them <laughs> <laughs> um so can we start from a fairly layman's perspective and talk about what uh, circadian rhythms and circadian cycles are and how they're important for sleep but also the connection between them and mental health as well yeah um so if we start with the what we understand about the neuroscience of sleep what's become clear over the past few years is that the different states of sleep and consciousness involve an interaction of multiple structures within the brain so the hindbrain deep in the brain the hypothalamus the midbrain and the cortex are all different brain structures interact act interacting and they're using essentially all of the key brain neurotransmitter systems to bring about these fundamentally different states of of sleep and consciousness. Now, in addition 
to that extraordinary interaction. And it really is just amazing. Um, you've got to time sleep and wake appropriately. And there are two important drivers. One is the body clock, the circadian system. And essentially what that is doing is time stamping all of those processes, saying now is the appropriate time to be awake and now is the appropriate time to be asleep. But there's a second timer, which is perhaps the most intuitive part of sleep, which is the longest, the longer you've been awake, the greater the buildup of sleep pressure and the greater the need for sleep. So under normal circumstances, you wake up in the morning, um, the sleep pressure is very low and the drive for wakefulness from the clock is low. But as we go through the day, the sleep pressure builds and builds and builds because we've been awake. And in fact, in the late afternoon, uh, early evening, the sleep pressure is incredibly high. But we don't fall asleep because the wakefulness drive from the clock is keeping us uh, awake. So it's really quite interesting. Our drive for wakefulness is at its highest just before we go to sleep. And then these two drivers flip the clock, you know, the sleep pressure is really high towards the end of the day, in the evening. Um, the clock basically says, yep, now's the appropriate time to sleep. The sleep pressure kicks in and this pressure for sleep then uh, diminishes as we go throughout the night. The sleep pressure diminishes and then the clock begins to wake us up in the morning and that's how we, how we wake up. So you've got all of those different brain neurotransmitters, brain structures, driving consciousness and sleep, and they are in turn regulated by the biological clock, the circadian system, and this sleep pressure, which is also known as the homeostatic drive. You said that in the kind of mid-afternoon um, to late afternoon, early evening, that the, um, the there's a lot of sleep pressure then. Is that, uh, is that something that in the UK that we that we don't get quite right in that we don't have kind of afternoon siestas that they would do somewhere in Spain or, <laughs> or am I completely on the wrong track? No, no. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's very important. And of course, if the, the wakefulness drive from the clock and the sleep pressure is out of kilter, as it is in night shift workers, then the whole sleep-wake cycle becomes very easily disrupted. But you raise a very important point, which is the sort of the siesta or indeed the nap. And, and what does a nap do? Well, uh, a 20 minute nap, it can be very useful in the sort of middle of the day uh, because it'll push back the sleep pressure um, and enhance your ability to function uh, during the second half of the afternoon. Um, naps longer than 20 minutes might drive you into a deeper state of sleep and, and recovery from that deep, deep state of sleep can, can leave you very groggy. And so it's been argued that, that longer naps um, actually can be counterproductive. And where napping becomes a real problem is in teenagers uh, and young people. Uh, so what happens is that the alarm clock drives the sleepy teenager out of bed. They are waking up tired. They struggle for the school, school day. They get home. Then they'll have a two-hour nap. That hugely pushes back the sleep pressure, which means that they go to, to, to sleep late that night. So they've had shortened sleep when the alarm clock drives them out of bed in the morning. So they start the day sleep deprived. So then they crave a nap in the afternoon. And this cycle of shortened nighttime sleeps and longer afternoon naps is a, one of the problems that teenagers face uh, relating to their, to their sleep wake behavior. So I've heard this argument quite a lot from different sources is there an argument for 
um, teenagers in secondary schools especially to start the day a bit later so that they wouldn't necessarily have to have that two-hour nap in the afternoon? I think that's a very interesting question. Um, And so where we have good evidence that delaying the start of the school start time uh, can be very useful in increasing academic performance and uh, reducing uh, depression and indeed self-harm is from the United States. And Mary Kaskaden has done some beautiful work in this regard. It's very difficult, though, to extrapolate between the, the US studies and the UK studies. And the reason is the, the, the time of, 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 of starting school in the US is really early. Um, some schools are starting, you know, at 7.15 uh, or about that time. And so the start times have gone from 7, 7.15 to an 8.30 start and shown these improvements. Now, most schools in the UK will start at um, 10 to 9 or 9 o'clock. And so it's not absolutely clear that a later start time, let's say 10 o'clock in the UK, would be particularly useful. And um, the other element to this is that we uh, developed uh, a education package which was designed for teachers to use to teach their students about the importance of sleep. It was eight 30-minute sessions with all the the materials um, about uh, the biology of sleep, um, what to do to improve the sleep environment, and also stress management. And what we were able to show in that study is that in those 25, 20 to 25% of um, young people who were showing poor sleep, that education alone significantly improved their sleep. So if you if you arm young people with the knowledge about how to deal with their sleep, and I should say also their parents, then you can improve sleep in teenagers. I mean, one, one example, I remember um, chatting to a young lady in a school in Liverpool, she was about 13, and I said to her, what's your sleep like? And she said, um, oh, it's, it's great. I said, wonderful. You know, I said, right, now tell, tell everybody around here um, what you're doing to achieve such good sleep. Because most of the people here have just said they've got terrible sleep. What's the trick? And she said, oh, I take my mother's sleeping tablets. And I said, OK, and, you, and, your, and your mother knows about this. She said, oh, yeah, yeah, she gives them to me. And I said, well, okay, how do you manage the next day? And she said, you know, it's not great, but after about two to three Red Bulls, I can get going. And and so with complete um, parental knowledge, this individual was driving a rest activity cycle. I won't call it a sleep-wake cycle because they were driving the day with stimulants such as caffeine and then sedating themselves at night. And of course, sedation by alcohol or sleeping tablets is what it says on the tin. It's sedation. It's not a biological replacement for sleep. And so some of the important things going on within the brain whilst we sleep, which I guess we'll talk about in a moment, are actually inhibited. Alcohol, for example, is a very effective um, way of blocking some of the really important stuff going on in the brain, as are certain sleeping drugs. And so it, it, it again goes back to where we started, which is the, the failure to understand what sleep is and why it needs to be preserved, and that stimulants and sedatives do not provide a replacement for a normal sleep-wake cycle. Yeah, so I think the kind of classic example is if you've, you know, been out on the beers the night before, you may fall asleep incredibly quickly, but that's not giving you the same... um, It's not as restorative as 
if you go to sleep um, more naturally, I suppose. Yeah, well, well, it's sedation. And, and in fact, um, uh, I know this is an extreme example, but uh, alcoholics, uh, uh, they lose uh, an element of sleep called slow wave sleep, deep sleep. Uh, and and even after they are have uh, are they recovering alcoholics, it can take two years before their sleep patterns um, are fully restored. So yeah, some of the things that we do to our our sleep wake uh, 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 patterns can be quite damaging. Yeah, that's really interesting. So and so the point is, of course, you know, you've not only got to educate the the young people, but also the parents. I mean, when we were doing this survey. In our naivety, we, we, we asked the question, um, does anybody share your sleeping space? You know, thinking that, that younger or older brothers and sisters might share a bedroom, for example. What we didn't ask is, do you have a bed? And there are a significant number of young people who don't have a bed. They're curling up on the family couch. And, and, and you know, so, so sleep is, again, we, we don't take it seriously as a society. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And that kind of leads me on to... Uh, a question I wanted to ask about young professionals in particular that um, I was lucky enough to go to quite a good university and a lot of my cohort have gone into careers like law or finance where there seems to be a real culture of sleep deprivation being a sign of success um, and that these companies seem to um, work I suppose because they know there are so many talented graduates out there they kind of work these people into the ground um, especially during the kind of um, the, the, the the tax return area of the year um, yeah. because they know that they're going to be able to replace them with the next cohort of graduates so is there is there do I suppose the question is do we need to in the corporate world think differently about the relationship we have to sleep i think absolutely and, and it's quite interesting because elements of the business sector are now becoming are now beginning to, to beginning to take sleep seriously and certainly i have been contacted to try and provide that sector some feedback and health and well-being is as and sleep as part of that is 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 being sort of taken more seriously but by certain elements of the banking sector for example and i think why one needs to take these things seriously is first of all to understand what's going on within the brain whilst we sleep so the consolidation of memory for example and it's not just the laying down of facts it's the processing of information so if you want to come up with innovative solutions to complex problems then a night of sleep can enormously help your capacity to do that so so brain function is really important and we know that relatively short-term sleep disruption can have a big effect upon, for example, our emotions. So so fluctuations in mood, irritability, anxiety, loss of empathy, the failure to pick up social signals in in family, friends and colleagues, frustration, risk-taking and and impulsivity, so doing stupid and unreflective things, Uh, a negative salience. I mean, there's some wonderful data showing that the tired brain um, remembers negative experiences, but um, forgets the positive ones. And of course, that sort of uh, tiredness can lead, as we've discussed, to stimulant use such as caffeine and sedative use such as alcohol or indeed illegal drug use. So those sort of emotional impacts, but cognitive impacts, I think, are so important, particularly in 
in jobs where you need your brain to work effectively. So your cognitive performance goes down, and we've all experienced this after sleep deprivation. You can't multitask. Your memory, your attention, your concentration, your communication skills, your ability to make decisions, um, your creativity, product productivity, and indeed your motor performance all declines uh, with poor sleep. So you can get away with it, particularly as a young person for a short time, but uh, it will eventually catch up with you. Uh, and and so, 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 the thoughts, so you've lost those sort of emotional and cognitive uh, responses. So, you know, we have at the top of our heads the most complicated structure in the known universe. Um, it's this wonderful, beautiful machine that can do all of this wonderful stuff. And by not taking sleep seriously, we're impairing its function. And it gets worse because if we go into sustained and chronic sleep deprivation, and as we go from our early years into our middle years, and we're still, you know, getting chronically shortened sleep and disrupted sleep, then you have a big impact upon physiology and health. So, you know, um, the, the, the cardiovascular disease, uh, um, lowered immunity, high risk of, of cancer, metabolic abnormalities such as uh, diabetes too, and absolutely a, a greater vulnerability to depression and psychosis. So is it, from judging from what you just said, it's, it's a misnomer that you've got these super um, materially successful entrepreneurs and business people that say they have that they they can get by on ridiculously low amounts of sleep per night um and that actually they would probably be more productive if more productive and, and judging from what you said by the kind of empathy, empathy stuff uh potentially nicer people if they um if they actually got a kind of healthier amount of sleep well, that's right. And, and of course, uh, in some sectors of the business world, um, empathy isn't needed, but in, in many it is. Uh, and what you need across, uh, of course, the commercial sector is the ability to make reasonable and sensible decisions based upon the information that you have. And you certainly don't want impulsive, um, uh, irrational uh, 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 decisions to be made. And, you know, one wonders about the, 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 the previous banking crises that we've experienced, um, uh, where people have just done crazy and stupid um, and impulsive and unreflective things, the extent to which their tiredness contributed uh, to those problems. It's the same for our politicians. Um, finally, I think they are taking sleep uh, uh, more seriously. But you know, this, these are the people that are making very important decisions. And uh, I think until fairly recently, they didn't take sleep seriously at all. Yeah, I think um, Margaret Thatcher was particularly someone who who claimed to survive on incredibly low amounts of sleep a night and it just seems that actually they need to approach it from a more holistic perspective that um that they would benefit from more sleep they would make better decisions they would run the country better and they would hopefully be more popular with voters if they did these things but it appears to be that well and indeed, lead lead from the front. And, and, and in fairness to that generation of politicians, they grew up in a time where where the importance of sleep and the biology of sleep were not understood. And indeed, you know, uh, it was thought to be an indulgence and, and almost a, a, an illness that needed a cure. And so it was easy to marginalise. Today, it's not. 
now we know the importance and the value of sleep uh, and 30% of our biology is, is so critically important and defines to a large extent our ability to function during the day. So not taking sleep seriously now when we know uh, uh, of the benefits and the evidence behind those, 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 those studies is very, very strong um, is, 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 to my mind, rather foolish. Yeah. So this next question, I may butcher the... Um the science and the, the the right terms but could you explain a little bit about how um the relationships in, in neural networks between sleep and mental health and how they're i think your research has suggested that they're very similar yeah after those studies on individuals with schizophrenia and seeing their their rhythms and their sleep-wake cycles so completely smashed i i began to think well well, what's the basis of this? And then, of course, it struck me as, as being kind of obvious. But interestingly enough, it hadn't been um, sort of thought of in this way before, bizarrely. Because sleep draws from so many key neurotransmitter systems and brain structures, if there's a change or an abnormality in, in, those, um, in those neurotransmitter systems, uh, then you know you can be predisposed to a mental health problem. So whether it be depression or schizophrenia or bipolar, these are conditions which are underpinned in, uh, by abnormal neurotransmitter pathways. And because the sleep systems draw from the same pool of neurotransmitter pathways, one would predict that abnormal um, sort of uh, or, or, or um, mental health problems uh, would be associated with. Uh, abnormal sleep because they draw from the same pool of physiology. Now, that would explain why, for example, genes that have been linked to mental health problems are also linked to abnormal sleep problems. And indeed, we've tested this uh, and taken a gene that's been linked to human schizophrenia, for example, mutated that gene um, in a mouse, and we've shown that that mouse then shows abnormal um, sleep-wake and circadian rhythms and sleep patterns. So we got evidence for that mechanistic overlap between the two systems. But it's more complicated than that. Um, because, of course, the distorting effect of abnormal sleep on our physiology, whether it be changes in our emotion, our cognition, or our physical health, that abnormal sleep can then exacerbate the mental health uh, pathology and of course the mental health pathology can then feed back and make the sleep worse so whilst you have an overlap a mechanistic overlap at the core it can be made much worse because the poor sleep can can exacerbate the mental health and the mental health can exacerbate um the poor sleep so um i said we have had evidence for the for the mechanistic overlap but the other component uh, in that model is okay well, if we can partially stabilize sleep, will we reduce the severity of the psychiatric illness? And a wonderful study led by my colleague um, Dan Freeman, again in psychiatry in Oxford, was able to partially stabilize sleep in a group of individuals showing paranoia and hallucinatory experiences. And what was so extraordinary is that a partial improvement in sleep led to a statistically significant improvement in their um, in, in, in their, their um, uh, uh, 
their paranoia and hallucinatory experiences. So, so I think we can think about sleep as a, as a potential therapeutic target. Um, if we can improve sleep, we'll reduce the severity of the mental health condition. And indeed, you might even knock people um, out of that state uh, uh, altogether. I think it also illustrates the fact that that uh, any mental health state is is a mixture of of underpinning physiology genes, if you like, but also um, the the environment can have a big impact upon uh, how those pathways and those genes um, are activated and 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 um, the severity of the condition can be very much influenced by the environment yeah that's that's really amazing and Moving on from that, as well as suppose linked to that, how would you recommend that that people improve their sleep in a, in a very general um, in a very general way? Because I think a lot of people um, at the moment may be struggling to sleep purely because they've been in the house all day. Maybe they're using the same room or same same bed, even that they work and sleep in at the same time because they're not allowed to go to work. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's tricky, particularly the, the the moment when when there's you, you know you're not only inside but you're also likely to be highly stressed, um, and uh, you may even be sharing your space with people who you'd prefer not to be sharing your space with. Um, but but I think the, key, the it's it's trying to maintain structure, um, and it's first of all it's getting the light right. So get morning light. Um, if you can't go outside. Uh, then get as close to a window as possible because it's that morning light that is so important at setting the clock. Um, again, uh, make sure you're not napping excessively. Um, exercise is very useful because it also helps stabilize the sleep-wake cycle. Um, try to watch your consumption of caffeine during the day. The great temptation is you're sitting at the desk, you know, the, the, the Nespresso machine is, is in the kitchen so you can just have another cup of coffee. Um, and then, of course, to counteract that, it would be consuming alcohol to sedate yourself before you go to sleep. So I think that's a real risk at the moment, that stimulant sedative, that caffeine alcohol feedback loop. Um, and also try, because many people are working at home, you've got to have a, 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 a fixed shut off so that you can wind down and you can you can get rid of those stressful um, uh, uh, feelings um, uh, and wind down before you go to sleep. Before you go to bed, make sure that the light is 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 um, fairly low. Uh, 30 minutes, you know, reduce before you go to bed, reduce the light levels. Um, stop using those electronic devices. Uh, and in fact, the bedroom really needs to be a place that you want to go to to sleep. It's not another place to work. It's not another place to watch TV or start doing emails. Ban those devices from the bedroom. Um, it's really interesting. Avoid discussion of, of stressful topics before you go to bed. I have to say that, you know, um, my, my wife always wants to discuss the family finances just before we go to bed. And I banned it as, as, a, as a topic of conversation. Um, and of course, adopt uh, behaviours that relaxed you, whether it's it's winding down, listening to a piece of music, um, uh, having a bath um, or, or doing a mindfulness tape or reading, reading your favourite novel. The bedroom itself needs to be the right temperature, sort of certainly no higher than 22 degrees um, and ideally for most people around about 18. Keep it quiet. And, and if you, you know, it's very difficult if you're in a big city that the bedroom can be a place of noise. But if you can use um, 
screening devices or, or noise reduction devices, then you then that's one way. And if you can't, then white noise sort of um, see uh, sounds or something like that can be useful. Blackout curtains, very important. Don't clock watch. Many people will have an illuminated clock by the bed and uh, you don't need to really worry too much about what time it is if you wake up in the middle of the night. Um, and what that does is you think, oh my God, I've only got three hours before I need to get up. People then get anxious um, and then, um, uh, th then they can't get back to sleep. So um, those are a few tips. Don't worry about sleep apps. Most sleep apps are profoundly uh, misleading. They can tell you roughly when you went to sleep and roughly when you um, woke up and if you had periods of, of, of waking up in the middle of the night. But all of the other stuff they try and tell you is usually deeply inaccurate. Um, it's about keeping a, a routine and, 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 and stabilizing your, your activities. Don't stay up all night watching the box sets. Um, uh, also, I guess one would say make sure that the bed is comfortable. Um, we, we don't spend very much on our mattresses and pillows, and maybe it's about time we did. Um, if your partner snores, and, and that, that can be a problem, first of all, you need to make sure that they don't have obstructive sleep apnea. And when things settle down, uh, they need to get that looked at. And, and you can tell if it's obstructive sleep apnea because they'll stop breathing um, and then they'll sort of gasp and, and, and wake up. And this is a serious issue. And many people have it. If it's just snoring, then if earplugs don't work, then find another sleeping space. It doesn't reflect upon your relationship. In fact, a, a good night of sleep can um, actually make you, as we discussed, um, less anxious, less irritable, um, more empathetic, and perhaps uh, can be the basis of a better uh, relationship. And the, and the final bit, I suppose, is if you wake in the middle of the night, stay calm. Um, it's very likely that the human sleeping pattern of a single block of seven or eight hours is not the normal way in which humans sleep. There's a lot of evidence historically and indeed in societies that don't have electric light that you will wake up in the middle of the night. You might, you, you might actually wake up completely, um, interact with others, uh, and you may sort of be awake for about 30 minutes. But if you stay calm, you can go back to sleep again. Um, and I think so many people will wake up in the middle of the night thinking, oh, my goodness, that's it. I'm never going to get back to sleep um, and then start doing emails and drinking coffee. Uh, so, so, you know, there's lots of things that we can do as individuals. And I think seminars feel that sleep is what we're given. And that's not true. Sleep is profoundly influenced by our, by our biology um, and our distinctive individual biology. Uh, but there are environmental things that we can do to hugely improve and enhance our sleep. That's some really brilliant advice. And, and so much of it is actually relevant to, to me personally. One, one thing I've always really wondered about and had uh, a fair bit of conflicting advice about is I like to drink coffee I like the taste I, I don't really use it for um, for stimulation purposes but what time should people kind of start cutting out caffeine in their day there's quite a bit of individual variability um, and you know if you've got a, a young healthy liver you can probably metabolize your caffeine uh, more easily than, than elderly people and also your tolerance to caffeine will change depending upon how much coffee you drink but the rule of thumb would be try not to drink coffee later than two o'clock in the afternoon. Cough, caffeine um, has a half-life of about 
five to eight hours or so. And so if you're drinking much coffee in the later part of the day, it's almost certainly going to have um, an alerting effect and delay the time at which you can get to sleep that night. Last, last thing, we always ask how people um, look after their own mental health, what things that they, they find helpful. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and I think that as one ages, one's mental health does change. Um, and I think that's probably because of the, the various demands that we experience as we're growing up. So the university time, the, the, the young career, the midlife and then towards age, they all will have different emotional impacts upon us. And I found that the, my, my mental health has, has changed very much across the course of my life. I'm still slightly vulnerable to um, going up and down, uh, having periods of long periods of euphoria and, and then, a, then occasional uh, low, low bouts. Uh, and I usually get myself out of those fairly quickly um and i guess it's 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 all very trite but it's a kind of positive attitude and i suppose i'm amazingly lucky because i share my life with somebody whom i get on with incredibly well and a lot of the time we giggle and laugh um and so at low points um i've got somebody who acts as the most extraordinary support um and helps me personally with my individual resilience russell that's been absolutely fascinating and i'm going to try and use some of your advice in 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 how i sleep (laughs) jolly good well it's really really lovely to talk to you hi everyone i really hope you enjoyed that episode just a quick note to say that although the things russell and i talked about we may find helpful i'm not a medical professional If you're struggling with your mental health, please contact your GP or an organisation like Samaritans on 116 123.